Hello, my name is Anthony Hudson and welcome to my podcast, The Masterminds. Please join me as I bring interviews with some of the very best in the world of sports. From top football managers, club chairmen, sports psychologists and the leading experts in the world of analytics, team culture and leadership. introduce the next guest i'm really excited to launch a new segment of the masterminds podcast the purpose of this podcast and it has been since the very beginning is twofold firstly coach development which is a huge passion of mine another passion in my life is animals specifically animal welfare now coaching and managing has taken me all over the world i'm incredibly fortunate and grateful and in every single place i've lived and worked in i've wanted to do something wanted to open a shelter, donate, volunteer my time. But some of those things I've just always been too busy to do because of my job. So I've decided I'm not going to use that excuse anymore and I'm going to do something about it. Millions and millions of homeless dogs and cats are killed in American shelters each year. And we can make a difference. I've recently partnered with Poor Chicago, which is one of the few non-kill animal shelters in the country. Paws Chicago have built a national no-kill model that has reduced the number of pets killed in Chicago by 92% since they were founded. It's an incredible place and it's an incredible charity. So through education, through awareness, through sponsorship, through support, we can make a difference. Every single dollar that goes towards a no-kill model like this goes directly towards saving a life. So please share, like, comment on this podcast. And for more information about this initiative, please visit www.sportingmasterminds.com where you can find all the information. So please enjoy the podcast. Next up, I'd like to welcome one of the youngest managers in the game and currently the longest serving managers in one of the best leagues in the world, the English Championship. Current Bristol City manager, Mr. Lee Johnson. Lee, it's a real privilege to get you on. Thanks so much for your time. We uh, we have a mutual friend in Bill Beswick. He's an incredible man. Uh, he's been a really great friend to me. How did you uh, How did you meet Bill? Well, first and foremost, Bill's fantastic, isn't he? Uh, he's a real guru, but he's also a fantastic fella. And uh, I first met him actually when I was at Barnsley, and um, it was a difficult time that we was going through. And I'd had sports psychologists before, and do you know what I mean? I, I was always very, very keen on psychology, but you're always looking for somebody that ticks all the boxes. And um, I asked Bill to come in to Barnsley and had a very good discussion uh, with myself personally. And then I asked him to, to take a, a team talk, if you like, and uh, really give his one of his sort of top speeches, if you like, because we weren't a million miles off. But we just needed reframing a little bit of Barnsley, and it was quite funny because I think we we'd lost seven games on the spin, um, but actually performed pretty well. We're bottom of the league, and then we went on to win seven on the spin directly after that. So I'm pretty sure Bill claimed that as his own, uh, and no doubt he had a massive part to play in that. But of course, um, it's the collective and everything that goes along with it. But yeah, I think Bill's one of the world leaders for sure. In, in that psychology, communication, language, and uh, it's been a pleasure to know him. What do you think was different about the Bill's uh, involvement then? How did, how did he how did he help 
I think in that particular speech, it was exactly what we needed. I think he, he's top class at, at reading the mood, reading the moment, understanding what's required. And uh, what what the, the topic really was about excellence. And uh, we had a lot of young players. Training sessions were very, very good. Um, and we was excellent in training, but struggling to transfer that quality um, into the match day. And I think just to reframe everybody, almost that uh, crisis slash clean slate uh, wipe of the mind's eye to be able to then move forward uh, sets off. And uh, and like I say, it became a very successful season and the club got promoted. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great story. Um, and I can see, I can, I can, yeah, well, I know Bill very well, so I can really, really uh, understand that story. Um, just, just something that we have an, another connection we have, um, we can sort of relate to is having dads in the game. And uh, you know, my old man was a an ex player. He didn't go on to be a manager. Your, your old man did, and had, has, has had a great career as a manager. Someone I really respect. How was that as a as a young player, uh, and your old man being a manager and being being in and around the game? Yeah, I think it was good. Obviously, there's two parts to that for me. One was having a front row seat, really, of his managerial experiences. And uh, when he was assistant manager to John Beck, uh, I was sort of seven to ten years old and I was a little whippersnapper running round and hiding in skips for team talks and uh, doing everything I could to get as close as possible to the action. And um, that, again, stood me in good stead. Beyond that, uh, obviously, I then played for him which uh, is difficult because naturally the first thought process for anybody will be, is there an element of nepotism in this decision? Um, And you can only really banish that by uh, winning things, getting promoted and being successful. So I think that was, that was difficult for him and for me in a different way. And I think the third part of that for, for me was when I made a conscious decision to, uh, want to go into coaching and management, which I made about 24 years of age, it was imperative that I had my own contacts and wasn't seen as Lee Johnson, Gary's son. And I'm sure that you'll have uh, stories that have similar themes to that because for me, I wanted to, to make the coaching journey in my own right. And I knew I had time, probably seven to 10 years to truly get that right. And given the fact that I wasn't uh, a huge name in, in playing terms and um, really meant I had to try and earn the trust of, of some top people in the game um, by merit, if you like. And uh, luckily that went well because uh, I got some really, some really top class people as well as uh, sort of football and masterminds backing me and uh, helping me along the way. And and to be fairly, in terms of career-wise, you, I mean, you've you've completely done that as well. You've you've had a fantastic career, and what you've achieved is is really really incredible. I think I, I can relate. When I first started coaching, like it was just almost one of my main objectives was just to become my own man and not be the son of. So I can really relate to that. And so so you you mentioned you started thinking about coaching quite young. I'm I'm curious about your style of play. I, I, I've Obviously, with our connection with Bill, I've taken a real keen interest in your in your teams and how they played, and I and I think they play. You play some great football. Your teams are really well organised, but you play some really good football. And obviously, you've had some incredible matches um, against big big teams in the past that, that we've all seen. 
like your, your style of play, how, how has that evolved over the years? Where did it come from? Why did you play the way you do in this style? It's a good question and, and actually not the easiest to articulate and, and define. I think the first port of call for me was obviously being thrust into the limelight in a relegation battle uh, at Oldham with 10 games uh, to save the club season. And at that point, it almost seemed like madness, really. Uh, a decision from Oldham Athletic owner Simon Corney to put me in charge at that point. But I was ready. I had a, I had a philosophy. I delivered that philosophy um, to the board. You then got the, the, the every coach's dilemma is are the players correct for the philosophy and vice versa? Um, and then, of course, you've got to methodically coach that way. And often you get put in situations and scenarios that is very difficult to implement that. For example, my first game uh, was, a, was a six-pointer, if you like, against Hartlepool. Um, and I had all the ideas in the world of, of playing like Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. But was that realistic in a relegation battle against Hartlepool where the pitch is cut up? You know what I mean? So you've got to make um, decisions and, and sometimes you've got to bend the rules, I think, to your own philosophy. And I think the more you integrate, you've had a pre-season, uh, you get opportunity to, to work on the sessions, to articulate the points, to have one-on-one individual discussions uh, with the players, the highest standard that you go to. So therefore now players not only understand it, but they can execute it with more consistency. I think it gives you more and more of a chance to embed the true philosophy uh, that you want to play with. And I think that um, over time, even at Bristol City, I've found that it's been, it's, it's been difficult to, to truly get to where I want to get to. And we're always striving for it, but we're never quite reaching it to, for various circumstances, like you sell a key player or um, I know you have a big uh, a captain gets injured or something like that and you've got to deal, deal with it and you've got to adjust. I think starting off at Oldham, I really had some, some big ideas on how I wanted to play. But now looking back at it, I realised how little I knew then <laughs> in terms of philosophy and in terms of coaching. I think the Championship is, a, is an outstanding league for a young coach that is learning the game because um, actually as it stands on the longest serving coach in the championship, which is four years. And there's an half been some good quality uh, that's come and gone in that time. You've only got to look at the likes of Yapstam and some of the patterns of play and you could really see the Dutch sort of uh, feel that he brought to that red inside that was successful and getting to the playoff final. And then you've got the likes of uh, Sheffield United and uh, and the way that they, they work their 3-5-2 of overlapping centre-halves. And it's almost an education every game that you're going into. And uh, it coincides with probably the top man in the world in terms of Bielsa. And uh, it's very interesting to, to not only watch his teams and study, but it's another thing to feel it and to feel it as a coach against such a top coach and, and coupled with the fact that we've been lucky to have good cut runs and go against the likes of Man United's, uh, Mourinho's Man United and Pep Guardiola's Man City. It's been a fantastic education for me the last four years and long may it continue.
you being the longest serving manager is an unbelievable achievement by the way it's it's uh, it's incredible and and to be fair during this time as i say I've, I've i've been watching i've watched games i've you know read the media i've listened to the chairman yourself like how you've managed the situation is incredible how you've you've you, you've uh, sort of calmly gone through it all and just and 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 what it appears to me stuck stuck to your principles through it all and the team have played great football it's an unbelievable achievement but what i want to ask you about this in terms of philosophy so so you talked about when you were in a relegation battle versus sort of where you are now like would so would you say it's players first before philosophy in terms of how you're gonna how you're gonna set your team up? I think you've got to mould both. I think the first protocol is stay in a job, survive, and um, and survival is making like educated decisions based on the players you've got, without question of doubt. And then I think the more time you've earned through that short term survival and uh, success gives you the opportunity to really bed in your principles of play. And then I think there's fine adjustments in terms of like, just to give an example, we've got a, a right midfielder, Marley Watkins, who's a strong, powerful boy, um, very good runner uh, in terms of the way he moves in that in that straight line, aggressive, good physical contact, but struggles in the pocket. Whereas we have uh, Callum O'Dowder, for example, uh, that is a similar in terms of his athletic profile, maybe quite not as physically dominant. However, he's very comfortable receiving the ball in the pocket. So depending on what you've got at fullback will depend on um, actually enhancing the attributes of your right or left winger. And uh, we've had spells where we've had to play with a centre-half at right-back, in which case... We've wanted our wide man to stay extremely wide because that right back then becomes like a support rather than a, a marauder that's going to underlap or overlap. And then at that point, obviously, our left back can be a little bit more expansive and play into that sort of wing back type feel. So I think that definitely players, I think that when you're recruiting, it's really important that every player you recruit can perform in your mind's eye as well as possible within your defined philosophy and I think that that's the key because you can't always pick where you go into you're definitely very rarely going to get a job where everybody's flying and the team's um, set in stone with 11 senior players you know I mean you're going to have to evolve this squad and I think the, the art of good coaching is is the evolution and how you uh, take the player from what on his journey from uh, the starting point to the destination, and obviously that's a that's a never-ending task that really we should enjoy, and that's the process that I enjoy most about football management, which is the team building process. I love what you said there about just on survival, making ed- educated decisions on the players you have, and and I can really really relate. So in my last job in the MLS, on reflection now, so when you say the art of good good coaching is the is the evolution of a team, definitely for me the, those educated decisions at the beginning, I I definitely tried to play a style of football that that probably wasn't suited to the players we have at the time, and it, and I actually had this conversation yesterday with a player, and it should we it should have just been a, a more of a slower evolution, building bringing the right players, but I can definitely relate to that. 
is interesting. I remember having conversations and what I always try and do is learn from others' mistakes. So one example was a conversation I had with Brendan Rogers about exactly that. And he was saying that when he moved from Watford to Reading, and, and Reading had been very, very used to a direct style of play that had also been uh, successful in the recent years. Uh, the the speed in which he tried to change the philosophy was too quick. And I think that if you ask Brendan probably about his Reading time, maybe that's what caught him out. So I always tried to have that uh, and those type lessons in the back of my mind. Obviously, then he went to Swansea and uh, has become like one of the one of the top coaches in the world. Um, but it's interesting that even a, a man of that quality that had a, a long time to look at it on reflection understood that he got it wrong and potentially may never have got back in the game um, at the sort of level he has uh, and did just due to uh, not like giving that philosophy and a, a, a time scale really into in sort of how you bedded it in. Um, I want to talk about, obviously, especially in the Championship League, you, you have an incredibly challenging job. Your position, uh, the, the, the pressure you have on you, the fans, you know, from every single angle. In terms, in, your, in terms of your own um, well-being and, and making sure you show up every day at your best and, you, and, and you're the one that you're, you have the energy to drive the whole club, like, are there any things that you do to get yourself calm, energetic, you know, to, to, to rest? Like, are there any things to get your, your sort of well-being in place? Same as a player, really, when you're preparing for a game. Do you, do, do you have any similar things as a manager? Yeah, well, I think it first starts from knowing that you've done your job. What you don't want is, that, is any anxiety, especially leading up to the match day not being sure that you've actually ticked all the boxes that you need to. So we work um, to my tactical periodisation um, schedule, really, which is really obviously an organisational piece. But it's very important. It's very important for the coach, I think, to be able to, to not only deliver um, clarity and consistency, but also to know that he's happy in the work that he and the squad have done to then find that time because as you know what happens is uh, and the worst thing in all of this is that the family ends up getting what's left of you <laughs> and, that, and that's probably the reason that most coaches and uh, probably all around the world are actually businessmen and anybody in any walk of life will, will go uh, through spells of guilt and I think whether that's juggling the ball of family life work life friends health there's always an element of guilt in this fast-paced life and so I am I am very very uh, emotional about the way uh, I want my teams to perform about what I expect about the uh, opportunity if you like to go and be successful and I think at that point you've got to understand yourself and it's definitely something that I've worked on uh, with the likes of Bill Bezik personally because I understand that, that my face has to be the best face in the room. And Bill's got a great saying, and uh, it's along the lines of the health of the team is in the face of the coach. And that's something that I always try and remember um, when I'm walking in, particularly after a defeat, because after a win, like generally everybody's feeling good about themselves and hunky-dory. 
but it's very important that when you're facing up to the media or you're managing up and discussing probably the past game with the CEO or the owner, that you stick uh, to your principles uh, verbally and have that sort of world-class communication. But more importantly, you don't look like uh, the situation is beating you down. And that's not easy. But at the same time, uh, again, that consistency and the rapport that you've built up in the past should earn you uh, the opportunity to sort of speak freely and, and fairly. Is there anything in particular, Lee, that, that helps you show up looking healthy and, and, and be in the face of the club? Is there anything in particular that you do? Yeah, well, for me, it's, it's more about the visualisation aspect of what's coming. It's, the, it's the, the mental drain, really, of the amount of thought that has to go into any particular situation. So it's actually finding opportunities and moments in the day to be calm, to actually be present. You know what I mean? To be mindful, I suppose. So whether I'm sitting there on my little girl's homework and, and working on that, she's probably teaching me a lesson or two. But at the same time, I have to be there because often you, you can be sitting there talking or having a cuddle or whatever, but actually you're thinking about the session. So it starts for me on the on the build up to the game. So therefore I want to make sure I deliver a very good team talk, first and foremost. I want to make sure I'm a very uh, good communicator. So I might have two or three players that I want to horse whisper to almost, like put my arm around and, and communicate in a different way to the group. Then I've got to study the mood. And then I've got to deal with the consequences. So I have to make peace with a worst case scenario, which is a, is a bad defeat generally at home. And then I have to go through a, a mental process if that has gone wrong to to come out of it uh, sane, really. And uh, in fact, I think that Bill Bezik was talking on one of your podcasts about me and he didn't he didn't name check me. But I was the man that uh, takes his golf clubs and uh, goes to after after a loss, goes to a, a lonely driving range and uh, has been seen to drive 400 golf balls <laughs> uh, over 200 yards just to get the performance um, out of my system and there's a physical element to that there's a mental element to that and then also there's a process that I have to go through because I don't want to lose that because that's effectively where the genius comes out because you you dig so deep and you assess everything in your life to then come through it to then make the team better and then I think it's about turning up and I think it's about turning up every day with the mentality of I am going to leave this training ground um, and this football club in a better place than, than, I, than I found it when I walked in through the gates this morning. To be, to be fair, I knew, I knew the, the, the golf one. I, I, um, I, I could never do that, Lee, because I'm terrible at golf. And if I had to go and relieve stress <laughs> that way, that would probably send me the, over the edge. <laughs> kind of play you, golf, make but... you more stressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but look, Lee. I, I uh, when I was in New Zealand, a very good friend of mine I became close with. Actually, I did a podcast with him recently. He's an ex All Black, uh, Sir John Kerwin, and he went on to coach uh, a couple of teams in New Zealand and a big rugby team, the Auckland Blues. There, and I remember I was uh, I was there when he was coaching the team. He's the biggest club there, and he was under a load of pressure, and they had a really bad couple of years, losing spells, and and I just saw I became very close with him and saw how it affected him. And uh, since then, he's he's gone on. He's been very open about his mental health. And 
as an even as an all black, you know, he he recounts a story where it got that bad where actually they, they were away on tour and he he was considering jumping out of his hotel window off the balcony, and uh, and so he's been very open about it and and now he's started a mental health campaign and uh, and and I asked him on the podcast, you know, if he went back into coaching, in terms of you know because it's such a big thing now and it's you know people are more aware of it. I said you know what would you do in your club? Would you bring you know, sports psychologists in, psychiatrists, how would you, how would you help your players? And he said to me, he said, I would, I would talk about it every, I would make it part of the weekly plan. I would talk about it with the players. I'd be open with it. Um, and I'm just curious, is it, 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 with you and in, in, in your philosophy and the club, in terms of mental health and supporting the players, is this something that you look at or what, what's your view on this? I have a slightly different take on that. And uh, it all comes back to the, again, back to the tactical periodization, really, where we start off with the tactical, then the technical, then the physical, then the mental, but also the social. Um, and the mental also extends to the families. So we work with the players' wives as well. Uh, just an example is I put on a presentation to the players' wives uh, a couple of months ago where we all sat um, sat in a room, but there was a themed night so it was a nice like, added glass of Prosecco and uh, it wasn't just me it was our sports psychologist it was uh, our, our club ambassador for the mental health which is a, our physio lady called Jill Holt and we delivered presentations and I, and I felt that was important because I know having been a footballer and having seen my wife being plucked out of uh, her childhood town and and follow me all over the over the country and over the UK. That it's not easy for the family. So I think that um, becomes very important. So the way we work it is we have two very defined sections. What one is mental health, and and like I say, we've got um, outside specialists. So if anybody has a fear about another teammate or themselves or a family member we have a document that's that's ready to go and contacts of people that they can talk about their problems with and and get real top level expert advice and then you've got the other side of that which is performance driven which is sports psychology and and often what i've found that's tended to merge and I think that becomes a problem a little bit for me because what you can have is you can almost have a counselling system when you're trying to drive performance and a performance driver that ends up being a negative to the counselling system. So for me, it's really important to, to drive the winning culture as well as knowing that there's a huge support network for anybody that's got any difficulties. It might not be mental health, it might be in gambling, it might be in gaming addiction, it might be in sex addiction. Um, and I really try and uh, make sure that even the players know that there's two parts to Lee Johnson. One is the human that wants the best for them and their family. Uh, and then there's another part, which is the performance driver that's going to be it's going to be strong, it's going to be disciplined, it's going to sometimes get under your skin because I believe it's the best way to, to drive your performance, but ultimately has the task of making you a better football player um, on a daily, weekly or yearly basis. I appreciate you sharing that, Lee. I enjoy that. 
Um, I, I just want to now just talk about leadership. I'm, I'm curious uh, over the years since since you you were first, you know, really thrown into the deep end in your first job to now. How, how have you, when you look back, how have you evolved as a leader? Are there any significant things where you think you've changed and or grown or evolved into? Yeah, I think it's ever evolving. That's for sure. I think it's something that. I'm very keen uh, on enhancing and progressing on an individual basis. Um, leadership is everything. The quality of your communication at this level that I'm at now is absolutely key. And if you want any form of longevity, you've got to be a world-class communicator because there's so many people to communicate with. You've got a 16-year-old that's, that's showing promise to potentially make his first team debut in a year or a couple of years. You've got multi multi-millionaire ex-premier league player you know what i mean that's uh probably an international and had 15 16 different managers over his career you've got billionaire owners um often foreign that you've got to be able to communicate with you've got to be humble enough to to deliver and apologize a message to the fans when when you perform poorly so i think the leadership is definitely tied into world-class communication and um, whether that's a team talk, a one-on-one individual session, uh, looking through the clips of a player or trying to buy yourself time to stay in a job when you're talking to the board in a board meeting. Again, it all comes down to the quality of the communication. So I think for me, uh, I have to get better I have to improve on language. I have to improve on, uh, like, not all the time showing that emotion, depending on the result. And I think it's an ever-evolving CPD, really, and, and a continuous personal development, not only for me, but for my coaching staff. So we're, we're permanently assessing each other and trying to uh, drive each other on on that element. And then, of course, it comes down to emotional intelligence, what's required at the time. Can you judge the mood of the individual, of the player? Um, something I've learned, just for example, to give you a little uh, little bit of gold, if you like, is the power of introduction. Over the last three or four months, I've been working and uh, understanding how the power of introduction can really make an individual feel good. And just to give you an example, somebody like Ian Wright coming into the training ground walking around uh, and, and me introducing my players to Ian Wright uh, and, and having a, a third party to communicate how wonderful I feel my players are can be a very strong communication technique to make that player feel good, particularly when it's uh, talking or in front of one of their idols uh, as kids. And, and how, did you, how did you come across this, Lee, the power of introduction? It's just research, really. It's like whether I'm talking to, to Bill or another sports psychologist or um, on LinkedIn or uh, looking at various TED Talks, you know, you're always trying to find a way to improve and a way to tell a story. Like you, you cannot lose the authenticity and, and you as a player. You can't be somebody, somebody else because the players will quickly read through you. Like none of it is an act. You know what I mean? It has to be genuine and it has to come from the heart um, and at that point I believe that uh, you can really touch people in the right way and, and let's be honest in a football sense that is to try and improve 
individuals as much as possible for then the summer parts to be uh, a really, really strong team and greater than any individual. Uh, aside from your own research, have you ever gone outside the sport and gone into other environments or other courses um, non-related to football? Have you ever done anything like that over the years? Yeah, I have. I've done a fair few things like that, to be honest. Um, again, like just for example, I spent time on NHS accident emergency ward and I spent time with the SAS and those SAS was more built on communication but it was also thinking correctly under pressure and with the NHS that was really my topic of study which was thinking correctly under pressure so when I'm then moving into a football environment you're talking about a match day you know yourself for that that little whatever it is six by four dugout area can be one of the most intense places in the world um, in key moments in a football match and, and for you to have the presence of mind the calmness to make good decisions in that moment I think we can draw from other businesses other uh, specialist subjects and other experts around the world and um, I've worked with and had seminars with the Red Arrows which is very interesting again talking about communication because these moments are life or death you know if, if number one red arrow gets it wrong by six inches that affects the domino effect on the back of that could mean red arrow number seven dies and uh, that trust has to be absolute and total um, in situations like that so I'm always trying to bring in um, little nuggets of, of quality and genius really to then pull into my philosophy and then try and build around it and, and uniquely make it relative to, to what I'm trying to portray to players and staff. You mentioned there about on a game day and being in the dugout and the pressure that, that comes with. So I want to I finish on this and I'm really curious to get your ideas about game day. Like, So if we start the morning of a, a game day, do you have any particular routines? Obviously, you said before about, you know, alleviating the anxiety and making sure you're prepared so let, let, if we take that you're on a game day you're totally prepared your week's gone great you've got everything across players are in a good place so leading up to the game what, what are you doing yourself like how do you get yourself ready to to get to the stadium are there any any particular rituals you've got um i'll always have a walk in the morning i think uh like weather permitting and i'll still go out in the rain but like uh, i think a walk for me is very good when it's calm. I like to wake up early on a match day. Um, I still have parts of the performance process to go through on a match day. Um, depending on whether I'm home or away, obviously makes a difference. But generally, I'll go for a, like maybe 20, 30-minute walk. Sometimes I might have breakfast out. Sometimes I might just have a coffee and sit down and write notes. At that point, I'll be writing notes on my communication throughout the day which players I want to try and target, to try and recognise which players uh, could be anxious, which players are in the optimal performance state to go and uh, put in a great performance. And then I'm now thinking about the decisions that might uh, present themselves during the match. So various tactical uh, scenarios that might come out, let's say, for example, opposition aren't playing the shape that we expected them to, how I'll adjust. I might get an injury to a certain player. Okay, I'm premeditating in my mind's eye 
how would I adjust the back four if the centre half went down, for example? That last twenty minutes is all is always that that real nip of um, tension, if you like, tension building in the crowd. I want to work out how I'm going to cope in those times. If the fourth official makes a bad decision, sorry, the referee makes a bad decision, how am I going to communicate with the fourth official? Um, and then I'm going to move into that match day process full of confidence. And that confidence will come from my preparation. And I think if I'm confident, if I've got the air of belief, I believe that will spread um, amongst the group and uh, and it's a fine line you're, you're for all what you're always judging uh, what's the mood like it, do I need to give somebody a shot of confidence do I need to give them a shot of anxiety do I need to match the mood do I need to raise the tempo do I need to give out a, a rollicking in the warm-up to get everybody going do you know what I mean whatever that be again it comes down to reading people and that emotional intelligence and then in a match day environment, it's about your little pep talks, making sure people have got clarity and understanding. And generally, obviously, being the, being the face, if you like, of the team. Uh, but also knowing that it's not all about you. And I think often what coaches can get wrong is the protection of using ego as a force field can lend itself to... Uh, an arrogant attitude and not being humble and human with, with many people on a match day and, and that's a delicate balance to get that right that last yeah. point you made like how, how how give an example how that could manifest on a game day is it well, from the manager i think it manifests first and foremost in your world centers around yourself whether you're an in whether you're a manager or whether you're a player uh, on a match day, everything is built up to that. And what you've got to remember is a collective. So often managers can put too much emphasis on their own decisions uh, and not the process that's gone into making those decisions. And if anything, that's the thing to evaluate. Was the process in uh, moving into the decision I made correct after a loss? Then, of course, you've got to go from having got beat 3-0 at home, for example, to then maybe the owner coming down and having a five, six-minute chat in the office, which, of course, can be very emotional. You've got to deliver uh, a team talk um, and, and either pick the players up or uh, set the tone for the next training session or the next game. You've then got to move into uh, media, which uh, at the higher level you go becomes more intense um, stronger questions and, and at that point as well you've got to make sure that you're coming across correctly because first and foremost you're talking to your players then you're talking to the fans um, and of course you're talking to your board as well so there's definitely an element of ego that comes into that both to protect yourself um, but also to make sure that you're you're strong for the, for the team because inevitably you have to be the the force field to protect that team and you have to uh, sometimes take a punch on the nose for the greater good and just deal with it what about half time Lee just just last last question so you you come up to half time how are you formulating your your half time talk do you use do you use analytics statistics during the first half any video in in the changing rooms can you talk us through that process 
we've got everything at our disposal like that. I mean, we're lucky at this football club in terms of like we've got the resources to to have the Opta data come down. We've got the physical data. Um, I think that's something that's evolved as well during my time, particularly as you move up the levels. But obviously the game plan is where it starts from. So my first question would be, are we executing the game plan? Have we got the game plan right? Um, Half-time whistle goes. Uh, let's say we're 2-0 up, for example. Uh, at that point, I will have a couple of minutes with my staff in my office, uh, particularly if it's a home game. Um, obviously, I've got an office there. But also, it's good to give the lads just that little bit, two or three minutes, just to come in, just to settle. You know, weather conditions, it might have been roasting hot, in which case they're there's steam coming off them that might be freezing cold, in which case they've got to change shirts. There might be a couple of little knocks that the physios have got to just check over. And, and I'll discuss with my staff. So um, uh, head analyst will be there, uh, two assistant managers and somebody that we have in the crowd. So we'll discuss. I'll then pick probably two or three points tactically to go in at halftime to discuss. And at that point, there's really the main... The main thought process for me is, can I help? At that point, I, I become a coach, if you like, that has to aid uh, an, uh, the team and an individual in getting better. So I might be able to spot various pockets of space that they haven't because they're right in the mix of it. I might be able to adjust and tweak the system or adjust the balance of the team um, and also come up with two or three fine points in, in how we can uh, infiltrate the opposition's back line. At any point, if I'm going to, to give them the hairdryer treatment, it would be at half time because sometimes I think that's important to awaken the chimp. I know a lot of coaches don't believe in in sort of digging people out or criticising or being aggressive. Uh, I'm a little bit different to that and, and sometimes a little bit old school in that mentality because I believe it should be used sparingly, but at the same time, uh, I think players need to know you've got a switch in you and I also think it can awaken the chimp. I don't think the effect of it is any longer than maybe five, ten minutes max, but that just can trigger something in the mindset to to get a performance in that second half. And uh, like I say, often then that will be a quick chat, four or five minutes maximum. And then now we're about reframing and ready for the second half. And, and at 2-0 up, we might need to, uh, like I say, inject a little, a little bit of uh, anxiety in some way, and that might be listen. We need to be careful of a particular change, or they're going to throw caution to the wind. How we're going to deal with it, or it might be uh, keep supplying a particular individual because he's got the, the makings of his opponent. I appreciate your openness there about all your your game down your processes um lee we run out of time here it's it's um this has been fantastic it w one thing that's been that r clearly comes across i mean not only is your your success so far is incredible and i'm and i'm sure it's you know it's going to continue for a long time but your hunger for growth is is really inspiring as i'm sitting listening it's um it is very very inspiring so Look, I, I really appreciate your openness. Um, I know the people and the coaches listening to this are going to get so much from it. So thank you, Lee. Good stuff. And thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a, it's a very good podcast, mate. And uh, I've enjoyed catching up and listening to, the, to your past guests.